Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called The Light of Grace. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March 26, 2017, the fourth Sunday in Lent. This is a guest essay by Sister Nancy Uselman. Sister Nancy is the director of the Pauline Center for Media Studies and a media literacy education specialist. She has degrees in communication arts and a master's in theology and the arts from Fuller Theological Seminary. Every time I read the story of the man born blind from John's Gospel for this week, I always consider the nuanced meanings of blindness that Jesus speaks about and it gives me pause to contemplate its repercussions. What does it really mean to be blind? What is inner blindness? How does one open oneself to receive the inner light of grace? So much of life is growing through the ups and downs of human living, feeling that shot of enthusiasm when creativity is abounding and circumstances are aligning in our favor is when we feel gratitude for, to God for all his many gifts. But then the next moment is filled with unspeakable challenges and heartbreaks that change our inner emotions instantly from the previous elations. In the midst of such emotional and life-changing ups and downs, how do we find inner peace and balance? It has to do with handling our blindness. Sin, even the seemingly insignificant selfish choices we make, blocks our vision from the light. We become more and more unable to see with the light of faith, in trust and serene abandonment. Instead, the sin focuses us on ourselves, what we want, what we desire, what are our needs, how these must be fulfilled and myriads of other human longings that are manifested through self-centeredness. We become angry at the choices that others make that affect our life and mission. We frantically try to fix the problems that plague us and those we love. We let our emotions take control instead of reflecting on God's mercy and goodness to us. What Jesus addresses when he speaks to the Pharisees about their blindness and guilt is precisely this egocentrism. This is the dark prison that holds us captive. We cannot be free until we move out of our own selfishness to a place of other-centeredness. The great 20th century theologian Karl Rahner said that one is truly free only in the act of self-giving love. That's the opposite of our culture's understanding of freedom, doing what I want, whenever I want, and with whom I want. Freedom is an interior disposition that comes when we live in complete trust and surrender to love itself. Serenity only comes when this inner disposition of the light of grace is manifested and brought forth by our willingness to throw ourselves at the foot of the Master and say, as the blind man did this week, Lord, I believe. Seeing Jesus is to see the face of God. Seeing Jesus is to recognize the power at work in and through him, a transformative power, as Bishop Robert Barron would say. 
Faith in the Son of God who leads us, transforms us, enlightens us, and loves us into new life is our response to the grace he offers us. It is the gift of himself. How can we not trust that? In the epistle this week, Paul never minces words for us who seek to be disciples of Christ. In Ephesians, he says, You were in darkness once, but now you are light in the Lord. Behave as children of the light. Not only does he exhort Christians to behave as children of light, but he says that it's done in complete goodness, uprightness, and truth. Sin does not allow us to see the goodness and truth of others. It sees only judgment, malice, and revenge, while assuming arrogance, heartlessness, and indifference on the part of the other. Sin blinds. Sin throws shades over our hearts and minds, covering us in the shadows of bitterness and anger. And so Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5.11, Take no part in the futile works of darkness. They are poison to the soul. And how many of us have not experienced that poison? So the question is, can we return to the light that is grace? Paul repeats, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will be your light. We can make that choice to move away from the darkness of sin to turn purposely with all our interior strength to Christ, the light of our being. Sometimes it can be so cliched to hear God's ways are not our ways. Yet, this is so true. Look down deep and ask yourself if what you truly want is what God wants. The prophet Samuel this week thought he knew who the Lord wanted as king after Saul. Following God's directive to go to Jesse and anoint one of the sons as king, Samuel eyed the eldest and the strongest. Yet, God's ways are not our ways. The youngest son of Jesse, David, was chosen to be the Lord's anointed. It requires a surrendering to grace to understand God's ways, to see through our blindness to the mystery of God's plan for us and all humanity. If you are like me, I want to see far ahead into the future and see the direction of my life will take. A wonderful image, adage by Blessed James Alberoni, the founder of the Pauline family, puts this desire into proper perspective. He wrote, As we travel, the Lord lights the way ahead of us. He turns on the lamps as we need them. He does not light them all at once at the start when they are not yet needed. He does not waste light, but bestows it at the proper time. I believe this is what grace does for us. It lights the way a little at a time. Christ is that light, as he says this week in John 9, 5, I am the light of the world. This light comes from trust in a serene heart. It comes when we let go of our intense control over life, our inner blindness. Only by turning and surrender to the light that is Christ will we truly be healed of this blindness. Only then will we see the light that is the one who knows us and loves us into authentic freedom. The Light of Grace by Sister Nancy Usselman. <clears throat>
For books this week, I review an important new book by a friend of mine, Arthur Amon. The title is called Lethal Decisions, The Unnecessary Deaths of Women and Children from HIV-AIDS. Nashville, Vanderbilt University Press, 2017. This book is 376 pages. Early in 1982, Arthur Amon, then the director of the Pediatric Immunology and Clinical Research Center at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco, treated a woman who was a prostitute and intravenous drug user and three of her children. All four presented with unusual deficiencies in their immune systems that were aggravated by opportunistic infections that did not fit normal medical models of disease. The same patterns, in fact, that he had been studying in gay men after Michael Gottlieb of UCLA was the first person to identify AIDS as a new disease in a June 5, 1981 publication. Amon determined that the mother and all three children had contracted AIDS. This was a tragic diagnosis because the disease was at that time fatal. Equally devastating was a terrifying conclusion, hotly contested and very controversial at the time, that HIV-AIDS was not limited to adults. Amon had determined that the disease had passed from the mother to her children as an acquired and not an inherited disease. He thus documented the first cases of AIDS transmission from mother to infant. On December 10, 1982, in a separate case of an infant who had received more than 20 blood transfusions from 19 different donors, Amon identified the first case of AIDS transmission by blood transfusion. This, too, was a tragic and controversial discovery that many people denied. The New England Journal of Medicine refused to publish his results, as did the British journal Lancet, until it relented and did publish the article on April 30, 1983. And not until 1985 was there a test approved for HIV for use in blood banks. So, for the last 35 years, Amon has been not just a leading expert at the center of the AIDS crisis, but also a tireless and vocal activist, especially for the women and children who have been impacted by HIV-AIDS, but also ignored, and especially women and children in the poorest parts of the poorest countries of the world. His friend and colleague Gottlieb has called Art Amon the conscience of the pediatric AIDS epidemic. This book is his highly personal, deeply passionate, and even polemical history of the defining public health crisis of our generation. The epidemic resulted in remarkable achievements by dedicated and brilliant scientists. Indeed, all the scientific advances tools, and knowledge necessary to begin the process of eradicating HIV in infants and children were in place by 1996. ZDV, to take just one important example, was the first antiretroviral drug approved by the FDA in record time in 1987. 
But consider this stark reminder. Today, an estimated 21 million people, 59% of HIV-infected individuals, are still not on any treatment. If you're lucky enough to live in a wealthy country, you have access to state-of-the-art drugs that now control HIV. Magic Johnson, for example, publicly announced that he had HIV way back in 1991. But in parts of Africa today, HIV is still a hyper-epidemic, and treating children with a highly effective ZDV has been mired in needless controversy. Amun's history explains how this radical disparity came to pass. Looking back, he now sees how difficult it can be, in spite of scientific evidence and personal tragedy, to move large and cumbersome institutions and the individuals working within them into action to protect the public from dangers. There are two separate chapters in his book on denialism within the medical community. The many manifestations of bureaucratism loom large. Turf wars, research funding, government gridlock, drug development, issues of confidentiality and liability, gender-based violence, self-interest, conflicts of interest, and counterproductive treatment guidelines by WHO, all these combine to create a perfect storm of a catastrophic epidemic. For Art Amon, the story told in this book is one of hope and caution. There have been both extraordinary advances and tragic consequences since 1981. For a long time now, we have had the means to identify and treat every individual who is infected with HIV. Art Amon reminds us that there's no excuse not to do exactly that. Arthur J. Amon, Lethal Decisions, The Unnecessary Deaths of Women and Children from HIV-AIDS. It's a new book, just out a few weeks ago. For movies this week, I review A Dog's Life from the year 2013. Ever since human beings domesticated dogs about 20,000 years ago, there's been a fascinating interspecies relationship between the two that has raised all sorts of questions. I watched this little 40-minute film after my family brought home a golden retriever puppy and after having watched sheepdogs at work in England and Wales. This documentary draws upon numerous animal experts like the evolutionary anthropologist Brian Hare of Duke University to explore what man's best friend can and can't do, as compared, for example, with similar research on rats, pigeons, and monkeys. Do dogs have spatial memory? How do they experience time? Can they count? What about their famously sophisticated senses of sight, smell, and hearing? The film debunks some common myths and misconceptions. One of the best takeaways from the film is that it appears to be true that dogs really do prefer the company of people more than that of other dogs. This is a great film for family viewing, especially if you're a dog lover. 
I watched it on Netflix streaming. From the year 2013, the title of the film, A Dog's Life. And finally, for our Lenten season, we've posted a poem by Wendell Berry. It's called Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. <clears throat> Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So, friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance, for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of humus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the, fa the false trail, the way you did not go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice re Resurrection the Mad Farmer Liberation Front by the poet, novelist, essayist, and farmer Wendell Berry. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 26, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.